The information expressed in the following podcast is intended for educational purposes only and was created by and belongs solely to Believe Limited and the Flow podcast and does not necessarily reflect the views of our sponsors. Please speak to your healthcare provider before making any medical decisions. This is July 2022, and the Flow team would like to start this episode with an acknowledgement that abortion is healthcare. Hi, I'm Jessica, and welcome to Flow. I'm here with Sarah Watson, sex therapist. We're going to keep asking, how's your flow? Welcome once again to Flow, coming to you today from Los Angeles, Detroit, Portland, and Paris. With the Flow tradition, we hope you'll join Bethany and Maribeck, aka Dr. Period Hackers. To start off, we have this tradition. We normalize period talk with a how's your flow check-in. It's good to know where we all are, menstrually speaking, as we enter conversation. Uh, Sarah, did you mind kicking us off? How's your flow? Love to kick us off. I am in the luteal phase, so mm. just went through ovulation, and glad that's through, because mine tends to last a little bit longer than I'd like, but mm. through it. Mary Beck, how about you? I'm also in the luteal phase. I'm about uh, maybe six days out from my normal scheduled period, quick in and out three days of bleeding. And then that's that. Pretty regular, pretty excited about that. Nice. How about you? I'm actually eight weeks pregnant, so I'm not having (gasps) any flow at all right now. (laughs) Oh, congratulations. Thank you. (laughs) But you know what? Knowing your flow is super helpful in the process of trying to get pregnant. Definitely did Mm -hmm. a lot of cycle tracking to have this successful pregnancy. So big fan of knowing, knowing your flow. Absolutely. I'm very pleased to check in and say that I will probably start menstruating during this recording. I'm pretty sure. (laughs) Just about there. We're going to come back to talk more about Dr. Period Hackers right after this quick break. This ad is brought to you by Von Vendi, Von Willebrand Factor Recombinant. My name is Nicole, and my deciding factor is making my voice heard. To hear the backstory, drop by Von Bendy, that's V-O-N-B-E-N-D-I dot com slash patient dash stories. We are back with Dr. Period Hackers. They're taking on Twitter, and this is a new existence. We were just before we started recording talking about how you two met. Bethany, Maribeth, could we start there? How do you two know each other? We met about a year ago yeah. through not even a mutual friend, somebody who's a friend of Mary Beck from high school who followed, who read some stuff on Twitter and connected us. Yeah, my very good friend from high school in Huntsville, Alabama, Stephen Anfield, like doing the magic of the internet on the Twitters. And like, who who would have thought like a Twitter random connection would have led to something like this? But here we are. Right. And you've never met in person, but you've been collaborating for over a year now? Yeah. Just about a year. Yeah. Just about a year. Our first tweet was in August of 2021. So we're approaching the year mark. Yeah. And I think, so I think we sat down like in July and we're like, yeah, I was like, we can get this thing started in like two weeks. No big deal. (laughs) And (laughs) innocence and naivete. But here we are. Innocence and naivete. Well, I can't wait to hear more about that. But wait, so Stephen, thanks, Stephen, for connecting you two because great, powerful minds having passionate period advocacy in their hearts are good to be working together. Can I also ask, because we do benefit the rare bleeding disorders community, how are you both connected to NHF, the National Hemophilia Foundation? 
Oh, this is all Bethany. Oh, great. <laughs> so, so I'm actually a hematologist. I work in a hemophilia treatment center, which treats all kinds of bleeding disorders. And so I have been sort of peripherally connected to NHF for a long time through that. But we actually got more closely connected recently I think it was about six months ago when they reached out to us based on some of our our tweets about periods and and bleeding disorders and such and have had like a nice little collaboration. We had a Twitter chat, which was a new learning experience for Mary Beck and I. And it's been really wonderful. NHF is fantastic. They do great work and we're really privileged to work with them. Lovely. Bethany, could you tell us a little bit more about what inspired you to go into hematology and how that worked out for you? Yeah, it's it's a story. I'll I'll try to keep it short. Basically, my my intern year, which is the year after you finish medical school when you're working 80 hours a week, sometimes 30-hour shifts, I was on birth control to make life more tolerable as many of us uh, are, and I wound up having a blood clot related to it. It was in my leg and I ignored it until it went to my lung, which is a really bad idea. Don't do that. Mm. And they actually connected me with this wonderful woman. Her name was Dr. Minicello, who was a a blood clotting expert down where I did my residency in San Francisco. And I think it was mostly because they thought maybe she would keep me out of trouble because I had shown (laughs) some poor judgment, but she was positively inspirational. And working with her uh, on thrombosis and then later bleeding disorders and stuff like that, things just kind of took off from there. So it was a little bit unexpected, but I love it. Oh, that's great. I love that story. There's always somebody that always in hemophilia community, like it's always a connection or a moment and Mm -hmm. something like that. So I love to hear that. Mary Beck, tell us about your work as a LGBTQ researcher in sexuality. Like, what's a little bit more about your background and how did you get started? Yeah. So I have my PhD in public health and I focus on like queer health, broadly speaking, and sexual reproductive health. So it's kind of just like sort of is a natural evolution. And I'm like, I'm a product of the 80s. So like here is my hemophilia connection. So I watched the HIV AIDS epidemic like unfold Mm -hmm. on TV, like so many other people and just like kind of very deeply inspired by Ryan White's story and things like that. It's like a way as for a young person to connect to a young person and try to make sense of this thing that you were seeing like on the on the TV. And then ever since then, it's just, you know, whatever queer and or feminist soapbox I can get on to help people get the services they need and like non-judgmental affirming spaces, that is what I am here for. Um I like recently have also branched out into like a little bit of sexology and I just finished training as a doula as well. So yeah. So like if it is about anything sexual, sexual health related, I am here for it. I love that. I love it. I also completely understand it, right? <laughs> as being a sex therapist, <laughs> yeah. and like wanting to know all about sexual health. It, it's It's enticing to keep digging and keep learning for sure. Yeah, I can't turn down educational debt. I'm like, what's the next thing I can learn? What's the next degree I can get? (laughs) Perfect. Perfect. Great. Well, I want to hear more of feminist soapboxes, to be quite honest. I always, always have ears for that. But let's talk about Mm -hmm. Dr. Period Hackers, this collaboration. Here's the thing. Dr. Period Hackers is the name of your work online. Your hacks are educational and all accessible on Twitter. And that's at D-R-P-E-R-I-O-D-H-A-C-K-E-R-S, Dr. Period Hackers. Why Twitter? What brought you to Twitter as your outlet? 
I can take that one. Honestly, in a weird way for me, it was kind of a, a product of the pandemic. When normally, you know, in the medical community, we have annual meetings for like five different societies, which means you're going to this big meeting, you know, pretty much every other month throughout the year. And all that shut down during the pandemic for obvious reasons. And a lot of folks in medicine have turned really to Twitter to get some of that networking, some of that, and, and it's kind of turned into an educational thing as well. And so for me, it was a really good platform to get just really bite-sized, accept, accessible snippets of information out there. It doesn't require the commitment to like sit down and, and do a YouTube video. And let's be honest, I would be terrible at that. <laughs> it's just, it, it was, it's just a nice way to re- reach a lot of people, I think. So that, that was kind of my motivation with Twitter. Yeah, um, the med Twitter community is so active. It's it's mm-hmm. wild. I only kind of tangentially touch it and being in public health, but it's super active and really fascinating. Great. You know. What did you call that? Sorry, the the med 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 Twitter. Twitter. Med Twitter. Cool. Yeah. Kind of like yeah. different pieces of like sexual health Twitter and like different mm-hmm. yeah. They've used also, the, the young ones use TikTok, right? Like if you're on that side of TikTok, right? You're on the med <laughs> side of Twitter. So. Copy. Yeah. I don't know. I think also Twitter just feels kind of natural since that's like how our introduction happened. Mm. And it's just, I don't, it's easier to write than to create visuals. But maybe one day we talk about like expanding out into some of the other platforms like Instagram. I don't know about TikTok because then we'd have to be on camera. But maybe, maybe one day. <laughs> <laughs> what? You guys just, you guys need like someone holding the camera and telling you you're great because you're great we can look at each other (laughs) sorry listeners we get to see them they're great you guys are great on camera can we talk more about the term period hacking Mm -hmm. what does period hacking mean to you and why did why did you become dr period hackers i think the idea behind that was just this idea that like you can have the menstrual experience that you want like if you want to menstruate that's great if you want to skip a cycle or two that's great the strategies for like you know, managing flow, different collection methods, things like that. Ways to maybe help your period pass a little bit faster. So it's just like, you know, a way to kind of design your period experience. I'm realizing, and Bethany does a lot more work around this, like understanding what abnormal or heavy bleeding is because so many people just don't know what that is. Bethany, can you give us a (laughs) one-two of that great information? What do we need to know? What's, What's the basic normal and abnormal? bleeding. Yeah, absolutely. So like normal length is anywhere from two to seven days. You know, average cycle is 28 days, but it can be 21 to 35 days. So anything more frequent than that, less frequent than that, lasting longer than that is all abnormal. The thing that I wind up focusing a lot as somebody who takes care of patients with bleeding disorders is heavy bleeding. And we know well, first of all, there, it is possible to measure menstrual flow using complicated chemistry and menstrual products, but let's be honest, that's not practical in everyday life. So symptoms that I look out for, so if, if somebody's having to change a pad or tampon, particularly if it's like a super or a heavy, more often than every couple hours, that's a red flag for me. Passing clots larger than a quarter, some clots are normal, larger than a quarter is worrisome, and having a, a history of iron deficiency, all of those are signs of heavy bleeding. Unfortunately, we don't know as much with non-patent tampon collection devices, although menstrual cups are actually awesome because they actually have those little markers on the side sometimes. So anything more than 80 milliliters in a cycle is considered heavy. So if you're filling up that 30 milliliter period cup three times per cycle, that's heavy as well. 
Great. Can you, so as, as a woman with a bleeding disorder who has a history of taking trans anemic acid, and y'all have tweeted about that recently, can you tell us more? Can you tell our listeners what that is and how to use it and how that, how does that help with flow? What does that look like? Totally. It's my favorite drug. Basically, Mine too. <laughs> <laughs> it's so great. It's good for a lot of things, but specifically periods. So the way I think of it is our body is always breaking down clot. It's always making clot. We have to make clot so we don't bleed for the rest of our lives when we cut ourselves shaving or when we have our periods. And we also have to break, break down clot so we don't wind up with big dangerous clots when we have an injury. And so basically what the tranexamic acid does is it slows down the process of clot breakdown. So you get to hang on to what clot you form. And it turns out that process of clot breakdown is super active in the uterus around menstruation. And so this medication is really helpful for reducing flow up to 40% in some cases. It's not hormonal. So folks who've had bad experiences with hormonal medications or just Mm -hmm. don't want to do it, it's not hormonal. And basically the biggest downside of it, I think, is it's two pills three times a day. So it's a significant burden, but it only has to be taken on the days of bleeding. And some folks even only take it on their heaviest days of bleeding mm-hmm. if they have lighter days and they don't want to continue it. It's generally really well tolerated. Some folks will have headaches. Some folks will have nausea. There's a lot of misinformation out there about the risk of causing blood clots, and it doesn't. We have these wonderful, huge studies of folks who've had traumatic injury, who've had orthopedic surgery, who've just had babies, and the ones who got tranexamic acid versus not no increased risk of blood clotting. And those are all high-risk scenarios. So it doesn't cause blood clots. So don't worry about that. Can be expensive. So that's a downside. Not all insurances cover it. Particularly for patients with bleeding disorders, sometimes insurances will only cover five days of it per month. And if you have seven days or 10 days of flow, that could be a problem. So I refer a lot of patients to the GoodRx app, not sponsored by them. (laughs) But a lot of folks, you can kind of hunt for a pharmacy near you with the lowest price and you can wind up getting it. A lot of our patients will wind up getting it for 30 bucks a month, which is not nothing, not cheap, but still better than what they would be paying out of pocket without it. So I think it's great. Wow. That's amazing. I love, I didn't know that 40% statistic like that. That's amazing. Like that's a huge deal in our community. And even for those who aren't diagnosed, that's a big deal. That's a lot of time. Yeah. That's a lot. Yeah. Well, and it's like the overall blood loss. So it doesn't necessarily cut the length of the cycle. For some patients, it does. And 40% is kind of the optimistic end. Maybe it's more like 20% for some folks. But still, it's significant. It's a meaningful difference. Right. And it's definitely helped my patients get out of iron deficiency and all kinds of things. Right. Because that can tank so quickly if you're bleeding, if you have such heavy periods. And then something else you have to deal with on top of this terrible cycle that you're dealing with every month. Exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Oh, I mean, so, so thank you so much for that information. These are the great tips you can, listeners can mm-hmm. also learn if you follow at Dr. Period Hackers on Twitter. Some of the other great things you're tweeting about include talking about, I might not be saying the Sanskrit word right, or two, the etymology of regulation as a source word for menstruation in different spoken languages. You tweet about this, you make it understandable and accessible. Are you both sociological and rhetoric buffs? Like what, what <laughs> passion of period brought you to these deep, levels of understanding about menstruation. (laughs) So definitely, definitely not. But I think, you know, one of the kind of qualities that people who do med school or do like doctoral studies is like, we're just infinitely curious and like, it's like a quick Google. And there's a lot of really interesting literature about 
menstruation and the words, I, since I'm the one that's coming to you from Paris, I am also like a lifelong student of French. Mm. So it's just like an interesting kind of thing. Like I'm like actively involved in learning the language. I was like, well, you know, my work is around this. I should learn like the slang for menstruation. I was like, oh, interesting. It's all like time-based, like frequency or period, like period meaning time the duration of time. Like, you know, part of the thing that we talk about on Dr. Period Hackers is this idea of like normalizing talking about your flow and your cycle and just like the rich and diverse slang that exists out there. And it's like, well, if we're going to understand where the slang comes from, we need to understand kind of where the origins of these words come from. Mm-hmm. As it's just like, it's really fascinating. Like so many of them obviously have to do with like the color red or visitors coming, this idea of like a foreign body that is here, that is now like taking over your life, which maybe is problematic and doesn't do much for menstrual taboos. <laughs> and this idea that it happens on a cycle. So it happens, you know, every so often. Like a lot of that's then tied to experiences of menstruating in like the ancient world and how it was, how menstruation came to be understood by like the founders of medicine. And like that it was, menstruation was either a way to like, it happened because femme bodies or bodies with uteruses held on to more blood and then it needed to let it or that it was a way to let out like bad things that the female or femme body had collected. So this idea of like, it's something that happens because the body with a uterus is like not as perfect as a body without a uterus, which is kind of like really like interesting and all of this like interwoven. And then we get into the patriarchy and this idea of like medicine versus nature and like this natural cycle of like what it is to have a menstrual cycle. And that just kind of from the beginning, they've all been misunderstood and like how that gets baked into and encoded into the words we use. Mm-hmm the fear-based understanding of menstruation when, interestingly enough, the history is that it was the first calendar. We're talking about regulation and time and cycles. Like it was the origin of the concept of marking time was to track the cycle. So that's a very valuable thing upon which to build society. Why did did everyone get so scared? Because it's blood? (laughs) I don't know. I guess. Well, I don't know. And like the I don't know, the men's of the ancient like Greek and Roman worlds didn't menstruate. So they assumed that it was a deficiency in bodies that weren't like theirs. Um, I like there's all these like really, really great myths uh, like around Pliny the Elder. He was like, you know, if if a woman who is menstruating comes into contact with fields, they will become barren and nothing can grow there. Milk will curdle, animals will die. And it's just like, Like, you really think this, like, at any given moment, I don't know how many percent, like, what the percentage is of the population that's menstruating, but, like, that clearly isn't the case. We would see, like, mass death events from, like, uh, you know, like, fields and livestock. Um, And this was was written in, like, an ancient medical tome and was accepted as the medical knowledge for the longest time. So it's not really hard to see that from that origin that we're still dealing with a lot of these myths around like a menstrual cycle and what it does to your emotional state and your menstrual, your mental state. And you know, that like you're angry and yeah. They, from the ancient myths to the modern pop culture, right? Oh, what, Sarah? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I just say it's interesting, right? Men created myths <laughs> about menstruation, right? They like, you don't experience menstruation and you're going to decide how it's going to be. Like nothing makes me rage more. Right? Like, of course, oh, I don't understand it. So it's going to cause crops to die? I think it's Uh, cute that they get so scared. They got so scared. That's so cute. They're scared of it. (laughs) 
<laughs> there was something I was reading recently that so this like 80% of high school students in the U.S. say they know more about the anatomy of frogs than they do about the female reproductive tract. Because like, I mean, I don't know about all of you, but like I definitely dissected a frog in high school. And it's like, oh, look, my frog is pregnant. So I got to learn about that. Yeah. Whereas like the amount of, of, of information that I've learned like through doula training and sexology training about my own body as someone who is deeply entrenched in this work, I was just like, how did I not know that cervical fluid was so magical? It's like, oh, right, because nobody talks to us about this. Like, yes, yes. It's, yeah, it's, it's absolutely wild to me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Same thing here. Like I'm, I, and I've, I say this pretty often when we chat, right? That's part of my job too, is like we're educating clients that sit, you know, sit on my couch essentially about all of this information they didn't get or and or they got on the back of the bus, which doesn't help because it's created from these myths that we've been living with for centuries upon centuries. So it's terrible. It is. And I mentioned from mythology to pop culture, I'm going to read one of your tweets, Mm -hmm. which was discussing the film Carrie, which we discussed on last episode, Periods in Pop Culture. (laughs) Uh, Here is the tweet from at Dr. Period Hackers. David Linton and, oh goodness, Sonia Lee wrote in The Enduring Menstrual Mystique of Carrie that, quote, the mysterious nature of menstruation that compels both awe and fear, particularly in men and others who have internalized the prevailing menstrual phobias. Oof, the internalized phobias. Is there any period hack of how to deal with internalized phobias? Yeah. I mean, first off, shout out to our intern, Barbie Kim. She is an MFA student at NYU, and she does all of our menstrual art, pop culture tweets and things like that. So just giving credit where credit is due. Round of applause. And I think the the way we hack it is we just start talking about it. And one of the first meetings that Bethany and I had, I was like, listen, so I'm going to go real radical on you for a second. I was like, I believe that we should all, anyone who menstruates should pick a month out of the year and we should all just free bleed and let society deal with that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then I guarantee you within a month, they will be like, oh, wait a minute, we need to provide menstrual products for free. And we'll understand what is happening to bodies that menstruate. Mm-hmm. But they're, yeah. Nobody's forced to deal with it. It's like all internalized and all of that stress and anxiety, which I think then create the, internally. And this idea that it's shameful or like the worst thing that can happen to you is that your collection method, your pad, your tampon, your cup was gonna leak. It just means that we don't talk about it. It's a shame-filled thing. And like, I don't know. It's all free bleed for a month. Yeah, which See month? how that changes the conversation. Which month are we doing Listen, this? Whatever one we want. Okay. We can pick. We, we should probably longest, coordinate. We should probably months. like all decide yeah. on the same month though. Every, yeah, no, just everyone needs to coordinate impact. on the same month okay. to make it like really impactful. Okay. I like it. So yeah, let's pick a, let's pick a one with 31 days. Like make mm-hmm. everyone deal with it. Okay, cool, cool, like cool, 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 cool. <laughs> I'm glad we're all on the same page. Yeah, yeah, it's really just choosing which month now. So maybe we'll put out a poll yeah. to our listeners, put out a poll on Twitter. Let's decide what month of the year, maybe in 2023, yeah. we, we rally for it. I don't know. Excellent. I'm in. Love it. I agree that talking about it, I can't think of any answer better than talking about it, to be honest. I think that our society has determined that the male body is the default body and that anything that happens outside of the male body experience is abnormal. And I say this because, pop quiz, does anybody know what year the National Institutes of Health first started requiring that women be included in research studies? Oh, I'm going to say probably this. 60s or 70s. I think it's real recent. 1993. <gasps> in, in, in our lifetime. 
my was, soul just died. Nineteen ninety. Yeah. You come yeah. back. Come back. <laughs> yeah. 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 Which isn't to say that women weren't included in research before that, but that's when they started saying, no, you can't actually just do research of only male bodies and decide that this data applies to the population (laughs) at large. And I'm not denying that it's more complicated to do research on people who could be pregnant and have menstrual cycles and stuff like that, but we're half the population. It's 100% normal. Like, mm-hmm. who cares if it's more complicated? And we also know that we've had some bad data from those prior studies, right? Like, for years and years and years, women had heart attacks that were totally unrecognized because yeah. people didn't realize that it presents often differently in women than men. And so just this idea that anything that doesn't happen to a male body is abnormal and potentially shameful, it's just, it's got to go. It's got to go. Well, and if I can, just building off of that, I do a lot of work around like the history and development of birth control and a lot of the racism that exists in in that kind of sphere. And one of the things that happens with the FDA and approving medications for contraception and things like that is that it doesn't have to be perfectly safe with no side effects. It just has to be slightly safer than the risks associated with giving birth which is one of the reasons why we don't see male birth control because it has to be held to a higher standard because they're, since male, assigned male birth bodies cannot, have, cannot get pregnant, they don't have those risks. So the barriers for getting FDA approval for male birth control is just that much higher because it has to be absolutely safe. And it's just something that people who, are, who have uteruses have never really kind of demanded this more perfect birth control. And it's sort of the same formulations that we've seen since the 60s with, you know, tweaks and things like Uh that. But we never demand no side effects because it just has to be safer than the risks associated with giving birth. So like all of this is encoded in the very beginning of all of it. Mm -hmm. That's a lot to digest. It's a lot to digest. Deep breathing into the void. (laughs) Doing a lot of deep breathing in the last five minutes. Yeah, yeah. It's a lot. Wow. Wow. So we have a long way to go. (laughs) Sorry, Jess, go ahead. No, I'm just, I'm trying, because it's always a balance. It's a long way to go in the medical community. It's all very recent for us to have voices speaking on behalf of menstruators within that work. Um, Mm -hmm. I was just going to bring us back to pop culture and the fascination of how media is at least leading the way a little bit. The 2018 film Bollywood is, uh, sorry, the 2018 Bollywood film Padman is something we did not discuss last episode that I wanted to hear what it's about, and how is it as a piece of entertainment, in your opinion, Dr. Period Hackers? I don't know if Mary, I, uh, that, that tweet was all from our wonderful MFA intern, Barbie, Barbie Kim. Yeah. So I will confess that I have not had a chance to watch it yet. I don't know if you have Mary Beck. No, same. I have not either. But I think it's based on the documentary period, end of sentence, about the man who is bringing low-cost menstrual products to rural communities in India. So I think... One, I think it's really great that it's telling the story of a man who is speaking out on behalf of this community because I think one of the major issues is that men just don't understand menstruation because they don't have to. And it's really easy just to be like, oh, that's something that the women in my life have to deal with. And then it's this idea too that it's helping with period poverty and things like that and bringing low-cost, effective collection methods to communities that cannot get pre-made tampons, pre-made pads and things like that. So it's also creating jobs for women in the local community. And so it's like a really interesting kind of like innovation that way as well. So 
you know, like a lot of good things that happen. And also then dispelling the myth and also making it more common for men to talk about menstruation, mm-hmm. which is a huge taboo in a lot of cultures. Yes, yes. And before we've talked about having, teaching, teaching men, teaching our boys, teaching them that it's okay to be carrying products for your friends. It's okay to be mm-hmm. carrying products for your sister, or your family members, and not to have the taboo around it. We all come because we're all having a period. People are having periods so that we can give birth. Like it, it just drives me nuts. Like let's just te- let's talk about it. Let's normalize it. Let's give people yeah. the language, right? Like it's just it could change the world. I'll never forget. I one time saw a tweet from a male politician whose name escapes me at this point, but it was talking about the need to make menstrual products tax free or possibly even maybe one day provide them for free in the U.S. And the tweet was like. I just don't understand if you're menstruating, why can't you just hold your period until the next time you go to the bathroom? And I was like, oh my gosh, this is a level of education of people who are making these laws for us. Like they just, they don't know. And it's fine not to know things. I want to normalize, like it's okay to ask questions about things that you don't know. Like we're not going to cancel anybody, but it's just like, this education should have happened in school. There should have been sex ed that included this and there just isn't. And I was like, oh, this is how it happens. This is why. And Mm -hmm. I think that might've been this tweet that was the one that my friend Stephen saw that connected Bethany. And I was like, well, Mary Beck just screams into the void about these things. She might as well find a partner to (laughs) scream into the void with. (laughs) Full circle. Yes. Okay, so that the tweet that connected you two was prior to Dr. Period Hackers launching in August of 2021. Yeah, um, but probably not by much. Not by much. Okay. I don't know. I scream about menstruation all the time and like other like feminist soapbox things. So it's hard. It's hard to pinpoint exactly which one. Okay. Great. And listeners, we will have their Twitter links, user handles in the show notes so you can follow along and hear the feminist soapbox rants that you need, the menstruation advocacy rants that you need to hear. But here's my question. That was 2021. We're now in 2022. What are you hoping for Dr. Period Hackers and the rest for the rest of this year, for the future? You mentioned maybe video. Where else can you bring this wonderful knowledge you're bringing to Twitter? I think right now we're just kind of trying to expand our Twitter platform. That The association that we had with NHF was, we loved. We had so much fun with that. And so, I, you know, I think we kind of come from both sides of wanting to provide education for menstruators about their periods and their period experiences. But also one of my passions is to try to educate other doctors because we don't learn this stuff in med school. Like we really should. You know, maybe somebody touches on it during an OB-GYN rotation, but like I had to go back and like teach myself and look up all these literature, like what is normal? Because it's just not ingrained, you know, unless you're in OB-GYN. So, you know, I think we want to keep expanding our education, both on the medical side of things and on kind of the the more general population facing side of things. Uh, Maybe someday we'll be cool enough to do our own podcast or YouTube channel or something like that. But (laughs) we're also working with some interns hopefully on some some research projects coming up to try to understand more how people learn about menstruation and how it affects different aspects of life. So right now we're, we're kind of trying to grow our, our research uh, area. Okay. Yeah. We've talked about maybe like having some of our interns who are internet savvy, like develop um, pictures and stuff like that. We're also wanting to get like a website up, maybe get some branding done to kind of grow the brand. It, it all just sort of took off a lot quicker than I think than we thought it would. It's also really reaffirming to know that there is this audience of people out there who are also obsessed with talking about periods as well. So it's something that I've seen like a, a change as I teach like in public health, like 
in those spaces. The first couple of years, there were no students who were interested in talking about it. And now they're like, I want to talk about period poverty. And I'm like, yes, me too. Let's do this. And so it's like very slowly kind of growing. And I'm really excited to see the field of public health start talking about this. And then hopefully we can like spill over into other other disciplines and just like the general population. Yeah, let's do it. Periods. Periods. Wonderful. Wonderful. I mean, so... So much support here. We hope to have you back on Flow as more happens. Yes. Can Actually, for a second, can we talk about the research projects you have coming up? Is there any way listeners can get involved yet? Or are things really early stages? We'd love to know. Things are really early stages, but one that we're primarily thinking about, we're hoping to get a survey of folks. And it's probably going to take us a few months to get that up and running. But when we do, we'll definitely post the link to participate on Dr. Period Hacker. So if you follow us there, that will be where you can find it. Yeah, and we're looking at things like where people get the their menstrual education, what collection methods they've had, other just like sociodemographic factors, and maybe building in a few things about like menstrual advertising and the current slang that people are using. Because the last study on menstrual slang was, I think it was a paper published in 1972. Mm-hmm. The author is definitely Natalie Joffe, and that's sort of the last one, it's like the preeminent article on this. But yeah, like definitely like needs some updating because we hear, all we hear about menstruation all the time, like in in music and TV and things like that. So just seeing what kind of slang we're using today. That that sounds wonderful. And it does kind of feel like menstrual Mm -hmm. awareness is this thing where people are popping up and going, yeah, I want, you're saying like, I want to talk about that too. Yes, it does seem Mm -hmm. like if we think and talk about this, that things are getting better. If we align with what is happening with the feminine body, that things might be helpful in communication and in relationships if we first take on the awareness of what's going on with the menstruation. Yeah. And the other thing to say is we're thinking where it's going to be a survey on the internet. So it's definitely something that anyone anywhere in the U.S. who's broadly, I think, speaking between 18 and 45 can take as long as you've ever menstruated, even just one time in your life. And we want to hear from you. We want to hear from everybody and get like a diversity of these experiences. And then maybe from there, we'll do some maybe more qualitative research to talk about like medical invisibility of menstruation and things like that. What happens like in that doctor patient office, you're having those conversations if it's something you talk about and like what your experiences have been like talking about menstruation with your providers. Mm, that would they have like a million ideas. I <laughs> we just don't have enough time. Yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> the problem is that we still have to teach. I still have to teach and Bethany still has to see patients <laughs> and teach and all of the other things that she has to do. Listen, we have time. We know how to count it. Our cycles help us count the time. So things will happen as they do. The flow team looks forward to staying abreast of all that you're doing and to staying connected in the menstrual awareness community that we are all in. Yes. Yay. Thank you guys so much for having us. What a great opportunity. It's been super fun. Thanks for being here. I just love that I can talk about periods with other people who also want to talk about periods. It's incredible. Yes. to that. Cheers for sure. That was rocking. We love bringing you amazing menstrual awareness resources. Catch us the second Thursday of every month with new episodes from Bloodstream Media. Bloodstream Media is more than just a rare disease podcast network. With shows on chronic pain, menstrual health, and Dungeons and Dragons. Yes, Dungeons and Dragons. Bloodstream Media's got a little something for everyone. Visit bloodstreammedia.com or find Bloodstream Media on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram to learn more. Flow is produced by Bloodstream Media. Shout out to Amy Board, creative director, and your hosts, Sarah Watson and Jessica Richmond. In 2022, Flow will have new episodes the second Thursday of every month. Hey, 
That's the day after I start menstruating.